Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. All right, Ben, uh, today's episode is Why We Hate and Love HR. So today, uh, what are we going to talk about, Ben? Yeah, so today we're going to talk about a little bit of the history of the HR function, what human resources kind of came from and what it's become. We're going to talk about what's wrong in our view with how HR oftentimes functions given the changing nature of work. And then we're going to talk about why we also think human resources is essential for the success of organizations in the future. And we'll also discuss a few ways in which we think that it should change. So we have to have it. We, we have to have HR, I guess. Uh, apparently we do. Uh, at least that's our, our perspective. And <laughs> we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, since, since we said it was essential, I guess we'll have to talk about why we have to have it. <laughs> I guess so, right? So it's not going to be all just hating on HR. We'll have a little bit of love there too. Uh, absolutely. Uh, all right. So why don't we start with just the history of the HR function a little bit. Uh, and as you know, I'm around the world of HR quite a bit. And just this is just from, a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm a professor. I teach and research in the world of HR. I do a lot of consulting that's related to HR. I have senior level certifications in HR. Um, basically, I, you know, I, I pay money every three years and, and get recertified too. Um, and you know, that's my background, but you come from a bit more of a holistic business background. So I guess to start, I'd like to ask you this, Chris, what do you think about when you think about HR and has that view evolved for you over the past decade or so? Yeah. Um, I would say, so like earlier in my career, I don't know. Let's see. What's my first impression of HR? Well, it's probably filling out a job application as a kid. You know, right? Explain your last three work situations with dates, and you're like, uh, <laughs> "This is my first uh, work situation." <laughs> you right. know, like like maybe a job at the mall or something. That do they still have malls? You know, um, so it, you know, interfacing very much in a administrative way. You know, checking the box, making sure you know you have that your identification so you can work that kind of thing right and you know then as i started consulting and actually working with organizations you kind of see kind of what goes on under the hood but um and then as you got into better organizations and stuff you could kind of see so it's like there's some administrative type uh, tasks and stuff and a lot of stuff around hr is just compliance based i, I think you might might say, but then then you actually start to talk about how you can have like a workforce strategy and use HR to help gain a competitive advantage in the marketplace. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I guess it'd be interesting, Ben, as an academic researcher and as a practitioner, how did your views evolve? 
So my views were probably pretty similar to yours at the beginning. I didn't really, so I, I was not a business undergrad. I, you know, have a background in political science and communications. And then I was in the military on active duty for a number of years and so forth. So my first interactions with HR at all were really like yours. They were, this is the, the paperwork people. Uh, you've got to fill out a job application. Maybe they handle some of your orientation stuff when you first start a job they're also the people who talk to you in really exciting ways about your benefits and compensation and so forth. Um, and then, <laughs> and then uh, you know, you don't really hear about them at all until maybe you quit or um, you really need, have a question about something. Uh, so that's kind of was my experience initially. And then as I moved forward and, you know, went, went through graduate school and, you know, so I didn't, um, I didn't study HR specifically in graduate school, but I, uh, so my master's degree was in industrial and organizational psychology and my PhD was organizational science, which was basically IO psychology plus a bunch of management stuff. And, uh, you know, I came to see HR in, in a different way and kind of saw, uh, you know, some really good things about HR and also some not so great things about HR. Um, and so, you know, I think we can we can think about this, or it's important to think about the history of kind of where HR has come from. Uh, and we won't bore our listeners with a detailed history of every single thing that's happened in the world of HR. But one way to think about it, and this comes from some good work by uh, Dave Ulrich and uh, um, and his co-author uh, James Dulaban. Um, you know, they they talk in an article from a couple of years ago about. The, the history of HR and kind of what's next. And this was in uh, a journal called the Human Resource Management Review. And they, they break it down into four different pieces. So the first piece, uh, or the kind of first wave of HR, what they call is the administrative wave. So kind of what you and I were just talking about, right? The, uh, you know, these administrative functions, delivering some of those HR services. And there's a lot of kind of regulatory compliance related activities that go on. Uh, with that initial administrative wave. And, and you think about it, like that's, that was kind of an important thing as the Industrial Revolution happened and as organizations realized that they needed to have a way to standardize and kind of have some systems and processes around how they manage people. So right, that was kind of the... You had like labor relations and stuff that were emerging in, you know, right reaction to kind of the industrial revolution and, you know, the emergence of manufacturing as a, a thing, right? Absolutely. So you was like, how do we deal with, you know, the quote unquote, uh, labor problem? How do we deal with, you know, workers who are, um, wanting to organize? How do we deal with, um, you know, some of the, you know, emerging legislation that occurred, um, you know, in the early half of the, um, 20th century around labor relations and unionization, and so HR also kind of had a role in that. Um, you kind of had the, the labor relations folks, and then you had some of the personnel management folks working side by side on some of those types of issues. And then, you know, the second wave is what's known as the HR practices wave. So this is where, um, based upon some of the lessons learned uh, from industry, as well as some of the research on these topics, um, you know, organizations realize that there are actually some kind of innovative things we can do to try to make organizations work better. We can, for example, use some systematic approaches towards hiring and training. 
uh, as well as kind of these other HR practices like compensation, uh, you know, different things around policies and procedures and so forth, and try to be more innovative in those practices. Yeah, so, so this is like seven best ways to fire somebody, you know? Like, <laughs> like, and right. I think most most bodies of knowledge come to where there's like, okay, there's a, we've learned enough now that we can have a community of practice around. And, and mm-hmm. I appreciate that he calls it the practice wave. Right, right. And along the, the way... Uh, you know, the HR as a function started to evolve into HR kind of as a profession of sorts, uh, in which there was more of a codified body of knowledge, some, um, you know, education and training related to being a, an HR professional, because there's, they realized that, hey, if we're going to have these specialized innovative practices, we probably need to have people who are competent to help to make them go. Um, and so that was kind of another thing that happened in this HR practices wave. And then from that, uh, it moved into what we call the HR stra- strategy wave. So this is about saying, well, we can't just do a bunch of cool stuff. And, you know, even if it, it helps the organization work better, we need to make sure that those things are aligned with the business strategy. Um, and, you know, making sure that our HR practices are helping to execute the strategy of the organization overall. Um, so being involved, for example, in a little bit more strategic planning um, and those types of activities. Yeah, I hear lots of HR people just screaming in my ear, if we're lucky, we get to be a part of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think you, so you raise an Sad interesting point. Sad but true. Sad but yeah, true. Absolutely. And I think you raise an interesting point because um, we're talking about this from a historical context, saying that the you know all of HR has kind of moved in these waves, and to some degree that's true in terms of the the thought processes and the body of knowledge and what we we think HR should be doing. But within individual organizations, they might be at different levels, right? There are still organizations, many organizations, who operate just in that administrative type of capacity. You know, it's it's not uncommon. For an organization, especially if you look at small small organizations, very small companies, say with you know seventy five people, like usually you don't even get a, a one full time uh, HR person until you have like about a hundred employees. And yeah, so it's, it's like <laughs> Steve answers phones and has the like ten ninety nine paperwork. Go see Steve. Right. Right. Yeah. Usually it's like someone's kind of half job to to administer some of these basic paperwork things. Uh, and then you maybe you have someone more senior in the organization who is the person who um, kind of makes sure that the uh, the benefits and compensation stuff is is done at a an appropriate level of competence. Um, so I don't want to imply that all of HR has moved <laughs> necessarily along these waves, um, even if the overall kind of broader practice area of HR has. Sure. Um, yeah. And so then beyond this uh, um, kind of HR strategy wave, um, Dave Ulrich and, and James Dullaban, uh suggest that the next wave is more about HR in context. And this is, you know, so you've got to be doing your administrative stuff well. You've got to be doing your, your innovative practices. You've got to have a connection with business strategy. But you also need to be much more about building organizational capabilities that help the organization succeed strategically. So understanding your external stakeholders and 
um, making sure that you're doing practices so that you're building some organizational level capabilities that help you win in the marketplace. Um, and so that's a much different type of approach. And it's what, uh, what Dave Ulrich calls the outside in type of approach where you're starting with a view of the external landscape and saying, well, how, what do we need to do with regard to our people in order to succeed strategically? And then working from that, um, it's a different mindset. It, 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 it's a much more, uh, externally focused. And I, th- I think it also helps a lot with being more strategic as an HR professional, if you have that kind of view. Sure. And it, you know, a lot of this stuff, like as consultants, it's always like, well, how do you pop this into a model for people to think about? So you could probably, so if you're in HR, you could kind of think of these waves as a bit, a bit of a, and I use the term maturity model loosely, but you could use it as a bit of a maturity model. Mm-hmm. So you could say, okay, well, I'm just now hired in this organization. Looks like we are primarily administrative and practice focused. What would be one or two ways I could get HR to be part of strategy? Or, hey, this is a super small manufacturer that I find myself in. How can I get us to each year adopt some new HR practices so we can start to grow? Because you don't you don't go from zero to hero in like a week or something like that, right? It, it takes time no. for the organization to kind of adopt and mold around these new behaviors, get educated and and begin to execute those things. But there's kind of a big cruel tease uh, in HR because most of the people that I get that, you know, really get it or are really motivated and read is, is you know, that they'll get a budget for some conferences and go to some of these uh, HR conferences. They'll get educated you know, they'll make pick up some of the certifications like you have through organizations such as SHRM, um, which we'll put in the show notes so people can get plugged in if they're not already familiar with them. And they, they go to these conferences and, and they get really fired up. They hear these like global change speakers and HR strategy. And then they kind of go back to their organizations and it's like, womp, womp, you know. Right, wow. right. Be- because a lot of places... <laughs> A lot of places we go, HR is not empowered to be what they could be for the organization. It's not even for, sadly, lack of education or motivation. It's mm-hmm. because executives all up and down the organization don't really, you know, they're still viewing uh, HR in that administrative wave type of behaviors or at best practices, but they don't yeah. have strategy or HR in context, which is odd because especially with like the agile movement, um, agile big A, I guess you could say, um, you know, getting, getting everybody in bed with the voice of the customer and all that kind of stuff helps organization adapt in a way that is uniquely fit for that situation and environment. And that can't just be our products. That needs to be how we even do those products, think about those products, staff people to, to do that mission, right? That's right. That's right. And one thing you said there that I think is, is interesting is you mentioned how a lot of times executives don't see HR as a function or the HR professionals that they have as being, you know, a strategic partner in making the organization move forward. And I, I would take it even one step further and say that many HR people don't see themselves in that way. And, you know, so there's kind of this learned helplessness within the HR function 
where if, you know, you're just getting beat down every day with having to, you know, deal with somebody, deal with people who are drunk on the job and fire people who aren't abiding by, you know, the, the rules and regulations of the company. And you're having to deal with FMLA fraud. And I mean, all these different types of, uh, administrative, important yet administrative things, you don't have the bandwidth to think about all the strategic stuff, then you're going to start seeing yourself as kind of that, in that role. And you're going to be less likely to either have the time or the energy or even the desire to do things at that higher level. And so I think it kind of goes both ways where the organization needs to demand more from their HR professionals and HR professionals need to demand more from themselves. Yeah. And uh, I mean, some of them just settle in, you know, like, well, why keep fighting for it? But, you know, most organizations will have the quality of HR function that they allow themselves to have, which means if you're outside of the HR function, if you're not making those asks about strategy and context and those types items, you're not going to get them. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or if you happen to have a hard charger and you kind of kill that, you know, growing young capability, uh, well, young to your company, right? That, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's just not going to happen. It's really sad. Uh, It's a well, it's a bummer, missed opportunity. It's it's a bummer, dude. It's a real bummer. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that kind of moves us into thinking about, you know, some of the things that are are wrong with how HR oftentimes functions. And this is particularly given the changing nature of work and how the world of work continues to evolve and how HR kind of fits into that or maybe isn't fitting into that. And, you know, so I'll just start with kind of my perspective on this. And when I talk with HR people, you know, I'm, I'm fairly transparent about the fact that I, I have a, even though I work with HR people all the time and I kind of am an HR person because I have, you know, professional certifications and so forth in the area, uh, I kind of myself has a, have a love-hate relationship with HR. And, you know, my, uh, I guess some of the disappointments that I've had with HR or some of the things that I, I find lacking in HR uh, really come down to two things. And the first is that HR typically does not have that strategic focus that it really needs in order to um, move the organization forward and to position what they do in a way that's really important. So they lack the strategic focus. Secondly, I find that many HR professionals lack the skills and the knowledge that's necessary to use data wisely. And uh, you know we are certainly moving much more into a data-driven type of HR model. And I think there's a lot of good in that. But there's also some danger in that. And the danger is that if we have you know only people who are good at doing a bunch of stuff with Excel spreadsheets and you know running the numbers, if they're if they're the ones who are kind of crunching everything, they're going to be doing that absent any kind of context or theories about human behavior. And it's just going to be kind of, uh, you know, what we would call in, in the sciences, dust bowl empiricism, where you're just, you know, looking for correlations between things and you're not having any kind of reason why uh, something's happening and, and you're going to make decisions in a poor way. So if we relegate the decision make the data part of the organization to just those people who have those skills without the necessary background in how humans operate, that's a problem. Um, and, and I find that a lot of HR people are kind of uncomfortable with learning the 
kind of the um, the the data analytics that they need in order to really kind of speak that language and be uh, able to to analyze things that way. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with kind of how HR people grow up, right? Mm. So there, there's such a large not not to you know let, let's give it the administrative wave and practices wave they're due. There's a lot of stuff within just those two facets. So yep. you know how many employees do you have before you have to add a breastfeeding room? Um, mm-hmm. How do you make sure that you have wage parity? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, do you just go? The list is on and on and on and on and on. And so then on top of that, you got to throw like all this organizational development, um, personal behavior, learning and development, all that kind of stuff. So anyway, you cut yourself in the trenches. There's a full career just getting admin and practices, right? Right. Um, And so when you you grow up, um, you know, grow up in a place where your whole life is being a compliance person, you don't where would you learn how to develop like a really strong learning and development program, especially if your organization isn't large? So like, okay, so let's say your organization were 200 and you spent say a decade learning all the admin and practices stuff. Great. But now your org's 5,000 strong and globally, and you have distributed development teams in Poland and India. And Mm -hmm. well, well, Okay, well, now you need learning and development. You may know that. You may hear about it at conference, conferences and stuff, but you haven't actually been in a place that's cutting edge and developing best practice around learning and development. So, Or you don't come from an adult learning or educational background. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the challenges are structural and, and real for that comprehensive thing. But, you know, it's funny because we talk about the changing nature of work, you know, I don't know. That's probably a buzzword, or I feel like I hear that all the time. Sure. But in a way, work has massively changed. In a way, a way it kind of hasn't. There's still that core fundamental. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's important for us to note that we aren't saying that HR should ignore its administrative responsibilities Or that it should ignore its responsibilities with regard to compliance or risk mitigation, that kind of stuff. That's important stuff. Uh, At the same time, there's another set of um, areas of focus and skills and knowledge that would be very helpful for HR to really move it forward. And it's stuff that in the best organizations, you know, HR is already doing. Yeah, right. With with mixed success because of the challenges. Yeah, yeah. And so I think it's important to, you know, kind of outline what some of these challenges are. And yeah, Diana Stone and Diana um, Diedrich um, have this article. This is another one in Human Resource Management Review from just a couple years ago. But it's a it's a good article in, in terms of outlining some of these different challenges that HR is having as a function, as a profession, to uh, make kind of this transition to something that's... Uh, more strategic. And the first challenge is that that transition from a manufacturing type of environment to a more knowledge and service-based economy. And if you think about what problem management in general, personnel management particularly, and human resource management was trying to solve early on in the Industrial Revolution, they were trying to take people who didn't have much skill, if any, and get them to show up 
to do a job at a certain level of competence and to do that over and over again and just keep on you know showing up until they eventually quit right it, it was it was a much different type of challenge that they were trying to solve versus many organizations today that are having to deal with knowledge work and trying to you know help people to to do a whole host of different things that are are much more complex and less transactional in nature. Yeah, this is all the teams, you know, teams begin to collaboratively build stuff, software, you know, all that kind of stuff, agility, you know, whereas mm -hmm. before, you know, like the earliest part of, you know, and a lot of this HR growth um, parallels the management growth, right? You know, let's, okay, if we time how long a task needs to take and, and then we, okay, now we've got a cycle time and, Let's look at every movement. Well, if we move the tool table closer to the bench, <laughs> then they're going to, you know, it's all about making a better widget faster. But then when you deal with like thought workers, service-based like workers, they have a different, you know, it's not a repetitive task. Matter of fact, we're automating a lot of those repetitive tasks. And so, right. you know, they have the team-based work and stuff. And so that just had new demands for HR. What kind of... You know, and now workers weren't, you know, just farmers or something. They actually grew up in other organizations and, you know, had varying success in team-based work. And, and, and so actually your demands as an HR and the stuff that you have to know about just just change. So um, you could have like, you know, I guess back in the day there was uh, traditional job descriptions like, hey, we need somebody that can stand on their feet for 10 hours and, and mm -hmm. then... And it changes, but, um, yeah. And I, I would say even within manufacturing, um, you know, what people do is much different than it used to be. Uh, you know, I, I, whenever I have the opportunity, I try to go tour manufacturing companies. I just love kind of walking around on plant floors and seeing that stuff. I just find it fascinating. And I, I was at, at a, a company not too long ago where, um, you know, the senior level executive who's taken us around, made a really interesting comment. He said, you know, a lot of people think that manufacturing now is, uh, you know, a, an, uh, an industry in which you come in and, you know, you got a thousand people and they're all doing the same job over and over again. And he said that couldn't be farther from the truth in the manu modern manufacturing uh, company. You know, today in a modern manufacturing environment, you have, you know, fewer people doing a thousand different things. And so even within manufacturing, you're having more knowledge work. You're having bigger um, collaborative types of needs, people who are going to have to work together more, um, a lot more complex problem solving, because some of that repetitive stuff, in fact, a lot of it is increasingly being automated, right? So, you know, as, as HR is helping organizations move towards uh, that different type of work environment, uh, they're going to have to do things like you know, ensure that they can select people who are good at uh, performing in a team environment, help them to develop those skills in problem solving, uh, look at how they're designing their jobs so that those jobs are intrinsically rewarding by giving people, you know, autonomy, helping them to innovate in their roles and so forth. Um, so there's a, a lot of challenges that are, are, are coming at HR from that perspective, but I think they're really exciting actually. Right. And it, and I, like, I think the perspective, so, you know, I've seen conversation in HR is like, hey, you're asking me to do stuff that's not in my job description. Right. But as I see, you know, 
as the knowledge work economy kind of happens, it's like your role kind of evolves. You, you know, mm-hmm. gone are the days are, okay, well, I am a software developer one, or I am a manufacturing tech two or something, you know, those levels. And these are what I do in my day to day. Well, as work changes and as we become more responsive to the business environment, even what you do day to day um, changes. And I love that kind of environment. Um, some people do not, but uh, that, you know, HR painting that picture and making sure that your staff to meet those kind of challenges is, is part of the gig now. Right. And that's why even kind of the metaphors that we use to think about organizations, I think, are, are in need of updating. Oftentimes, people think of organizations kind of as a machine. And I feel like that's actually a fairly inaccurate and horrible way to think about organizations because uh, people don't operate that way. Uh, it, it allows for little variation. Um, people are, you know, if, if the organization is, is a machine, you know, that's, that's all about efficiency and doing the same thing over and over again. Um, and, you know, even things like traditional, you kind of mentioned this already, but traditional job descriptions, um, you know, these are still good things to have. And, uh, you know, the way that we typically, if you're trying to develop a good job description, you'll go through a process called job analysis, where you're, uh, really trying to observe and study what happens in a job. What are the tasks involved? What does performance look like? and so forth, and then you use that to develop your job description, and ideally you also use that to develop kind of some ideas around what what characteristics of people help someone be successful in that role. But the problem is is that traditional job analysis is only a snapshot of what's going on right now or what, what kind of happened in the past, and it's maybe not as helpful for future challenges of the role or of the work. And so, you know, some people out there are saying that we should move away from just doing kind of job analysis and instead look at more like project or work analysis to try to understand uh, a kind of a broader picture of what needs to happen and then work backwards from that to figure out, you know, what types of people we need to fill those roles. Right, right. And so the, uh, the second challenge um, is this rise in globalization, right? And of course, this is uh, affects mainly larger companies. However, I come across even smaller companies that, that do work all over the world. And with HR, especially if you're in a larger organization, the challenge oftentimes is to decide whether or not you're going to centralize all of your HR stuff or if you're going to decentralize it. Are you going to have kind of corporate headquarters dictate what's going to happen across the entire organization? Or are you going to allow for some adaptation and adjustment at the local level to make sure that you're doing things in accordance with um, local culture and uh, customs and laws and so forth. And there's probably a happy medium there that, that should occur um, so that it's not a completely different organization when you, when you go from working in Latin America to working in, in Europe in the same company, right? Um, but, but that is a challenge, right? And then, of course, dealing with some of those cross-cultural differences can be... Uh, can be a challenge as well, especially for the larger organizations. Yeah, I think about, I don't know, you especially see this in software development, but, you know, companies that do this on the regular, you know, kind of settle into something, something that works uh, for them. But normally it's kind of by default rather than purposefully designing that, Mm. you know, because one of the things is if you're going to have an HR function and you're going to be responsive, you need to have you know, organizations have sensing functions in the sense of like, oh, do we see consumer sentiment changing? 
HR also needs to have a quality sensing function with within and without the organization. Hey, are we meeting the needs of our populace and the challenges of how things are going in internally? And how is that shaped to where our strategy is driving externally? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sure. And then on top of those two challenges we've mentioned already, the number one transition from a manufacturing to a more knowledge and service-based economy, number two, the rise in globalization, a third challenge is all around the growing domestic diversity uh, within organizations, particularly with regard to demographics. And one of the bigger ones is actually age, um, because people are living longer. They are working longer. The millennials. So, the, oh, gosh, the don't even say the millennials. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So now I'll, I'll, I will grant uh, the, the fact that millennial does describe a... Uh, set of people who were born within a certain date range. Um, but I, I, I really think that we let's, should just... Let's boot stomp let's just, the millennial thing. Yeah, let's just boot stomp the, uh, the idea that millennials are some sort of different species. And there, I mean, there's a variety of... You know, so there was kind of this wave of um, consulting practice and angst among managers uh, probably about 10 years ago. It was like, how do we manage these millennials, these these strange creatures who are coming into our companies with iPhones, and it's ridiculous. Avocado uh, toast. You, like, <laughs> yeah. you can't say, like, that's how you know it's become something that's full of baloney, when you can, can uh, like, even come up with these, like, trite characteristics that I think are hugely discriminatory, but, you know. Uh, they are. Snowflakes, right? and, and, avocado yeah. toast. What were you telling me the other day? It's like, and I had to think about it, like, Military millennials right now are actually retiring. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, you could be a millennial right now. So we're, we're recording this here in, in uh, October of 2019, and you could be a millennial and be 38 years old. And if you joined the military when you were 18, you could be retiring. So, so uh, we're talking you know. like over a decade of war, and you're some yeah. kind of snowflake that just... And hey, avocado toast is actually pretty good. Oh, yeah, with a little cheese and tomato. Oh, it's delicious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you got to have a good bread, too. But, uh, yeah, so I, I really want to move away from these broad generational characterizations. And I think that's actually something that, that HR has gotten a little bit wrong over the, you know, they've kind of bought into, in some ways, these ideas, and it, it's not helpful. Um, they You know, they haven't looked at the evidence, you know, um, there's much, much more variation within any generation than there are between these generations. So, um, you know, if you continue to treat all of your employees with dignity and respect and you show everyone in your organization that you care about them as people and that you value their contributions to the company, guess what? They're going to like being there. They're going to produce, you know, at a higher level than the people who you don't show that to, right? So the, the, the basics of human psychology have not changed. Now, we do have, you know, a, a broader variety of ages, though, in the, in the workplace. And the, I think the challenge here is it does have to do somewhat with the familiarity with, with technology. Um, and then just, you know, you have different working styles at different ages. You know, I think back to when I was, you know, 18 or 22. And, you know, I probably did a lot of the stuff that people complain about 18-year-olds and 22-year-olds doing now. Yeah, because you're a numbskull. Well, I, we were absolutely. probably, but... <laughs> Yeah, for sure. But this also yeah. situation of life, you know, like if, if you're just at a MBA or undergrad program or something and you're hungry to 
learn a lot, make a difference. You can do 300 days of travel in a given year and mm-hmm. burn the midnight oil on projects. But if you have um, high school kids that are needing to go tire kick colleges over the summer, I mean, you're going to have different needs based on your situation in life. But, you know, mm-hmm. that's not just what if you have a terminally ill parent and you're 22? Mm-hmm. You know, you may not be able to kick it like somebody who's just living that dual income, no kid apartment life. Gosh, dual income, no kid. That's a, that's that's a, a world away from fantasy. World away from me. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. G- given that we both have children, right? Um, absolutely. So I think there's, uh, you know, you know, the bottom line there is HR really needs to make sure that what they're doing is based upon the data and is uh, still treating people as unique and not not categorizing folks based upon their generation, while at the same time realizing that you are going to have differences and making sure that you can um, uh, accommodate people across those different differences, help people from different generations learn from each other. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, that's a, a really helpful thing. And it may be some kind of situations where maybe you have some people who are younger who are mentoring those people who are older and, and vice versa. So um, kind of along the lines of diversity, too, of course, there's expanding uh, ethnic diversity with globalization and with, you know, a lot of the, the jobs that we need to fill. Uh, quite honestly, we, we really need, particularly in the United States, we need people from other countries to fill those jobs. And I'm thinking of a lot of tech, technological jobs, um, and so, you know, helping to ensure that everyone in the organization is flourishing is an important part of HR. And then the final uh, category of challenges here that I think we should mention is just the emerging use of technology within HR. Um, so there are, you know, a couple here, one being just the use of analytics and the other being this new, mysterious, sexy world of machine learning and artificial intelligence. And it's almost feel like when these vendors or consultants, you know, they, they're calling on HR department. It's like almost like they're trying to sell, sell a water gun or something. This one shoots 2,000 feet and is made of extruded plastic or something. You know, one <laughs> of those super soakers. Like, you know, I remember when that water gun came out. I was like, man, this is a water gun to beat uh, all water uh, guns. You know, I never, I never got the really great water guns. It's a... I wish I would have. My kids now, yeah, I'll get them the nice ones. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's like, you know, the, the vendors will show up and be like, hey, well, this software has analytics. Or, or look, we've got AI, you know, with, mm-hmm. with an AI armrest or something like that. But <laughs> the, I, it's not that they aren't out there, but as a percentage of the business body, people um, are challenged to meaningfully use analytics beyond a very cursory basic level. Mm -hmm. Um, Turnover rates would be a common one. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, some of those things, but, you know, we're we're not just talking big data. That's another buzzword. So your HR Wonder Gun's got big data analytics machine AI. <laughs> so you you got big data, but a lot of people because they don't come out of like mm, database management roles or design. Um, you know that's one thing that as an HR person, like you kind of have to work with technology to even design your data needs. 
Um, even if you have kind of a one of the bigger software products that's off the shelf, of course, there's lots of mm-hmm. consultants that'll you know bill you a lot to help you with that. But then there's also just small data that mm-hmm. that stuff um, sees, and then like some basic mathematical modeling knowledge and like the knowledge between like a linear and non-linear relationship in data like you know that's still emergent for a lot of hr roles and functions that that we see it is and, and you know not to disparage any of these things like these are these can be super helpful if they're used in a smart way uh i think the criticism of hr as it currently stands as a profession and as a function right now is that i think a lot of them are using it blindly or not using it perhaps with the with the knowledge and skill that's necessary to really make good informed decisions. And then, you know, once you figure out what the data is telling you, you've also got to interpret it and say, well, okay, this is what the, the the data are are saying this, but what does that mean for my organization? And that's a whole nother level of analytic thought and interpretive types of um, thinking that are really important for, for organizations. And, you know, you mentioned small data. So small data is, you know, that's the, the data you have on your organization. All, you know, all the stuff in your HR information system is kind of what we call small data. If you're doing a good job analyzing that, that, that can be super helpful too. Um, you don't necessarily have to have what we consider big data, which is, you know, millions of data points um, and so forth. But uh, so emerging use of technology is definitely an area that HR really needs to start to grapple with and understand and not just be um, kind of driven by, um, you know, and, and I think there's, there really needs to be continued effort in uh, knowledge and skill building in that area. Yeah. So like we talk about, you know, the title of this episode is, you know, what we hate and love about HR. So I hate it when they stink at using analytics and or misuse machine learning or something like that. Right. A good example of that might be, well, how are we going to evaluate our managers? And they bring up non-related data points that you actually don't control. So that would be a way to, you know, build ire against the HR function within your organization. But we love... Mm-hmm. We love when, say, they could take analytics, both big and small data, and provide us information as an organization, as an individual, like based on individual performance or as as managers and stuff like that. We love when they provide it in a meaningful way with a meaning delivery device. Um, So Mm -hmm. it cuts both ways, right? Absolutely. Yeah, well said. I think that kind of brings us to, uh, you know, after we've um, you know, we talk about some of these challenges and some of the things that we think HR needs to do a little bit differently. Uh, you know, I think we could turn our attention now to why we think HR is truly essential for the success of organizations in the future, and maybe a few things about how HR should change. Yeah. So, first of all, it's like people in HR are there's generally some of the most caring people in the orgs, right? Mm-hmm. They have good intentions. I, I think people that choose HR as a profession, there's kind of a self-selection that goes, goes, um, goes on with that. And, and there should be people within an organization that, you know, give a rip about both the people there and their personal lives and, and how they're doing at work and give a rip about how, people and the organization caters to them and then how those people can cater to the goals and objectives of the organization, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, HR people are a lot of fun a lot of times. Um, so, and in terms of their position within the organization, you know, we, what we talk about a lot here, Chris, is, is, is about human flourishing at work and, and beyond work. And HR and HR people are in this position where they, I think, can have a really uh, outsized impact on that, that level of human flourishing and when you have that, uh, you know, when people are able to flourish in their work lives, that that's a good thing for everybody because then they're, they're going to flourish more at home. They're going to be able to, uh, you know, uh, flourish more in society. It's going to help the organization overall. And I think it just makes the world a better place. So uh, I think it's, it's not necessarily an overstatement to say if we can get HR right, um, we can change the world in a way. Get them right and, and actually empower them. They may have it right, but, you know, us as the organization can be in a way for their own flourishing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's well said. And, you know, HR is also important because, uh, you know, we, we talk about these administrative types of responsibilities, and uh, like those are important. Like, HR can help the organization stay out of legal and ethical trouble. Um, you know, the legal piece is more about compliance, ensuring that you're following the different rules and, and uh, policies that, that uh, apply, for example, at different um, sizes of organizations, um, but also, you know, helping the organization to have ethical practices, um, having uh, a culture that encourages uh, ethical practice and so forth. So that, that's definitely important. Um, and, and, you know, also just you know, beyond that, if HR is operating strategically, I, I think it can help the organization to beat your competitors, right? Right. So, yeah. So if you're if you're a Google or Facebook, you know your culture and the kind of stuff that HR curates. If you let them, ask them to, equip them, uh, demand that they do. You know, a lot of a lot of this stuff, especially in knowledge and services, the quality of your people determines how fast you can move the ball down the field, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So it's actually better better for your bottom line. So by by doing right, you can do better, you know, type things. So for sure, and there there's some great research out there looking at the the links between doing what we call high performance work practices. Uh, you know, doing a lot of the HR stuff. Uh, well, and financial outcomes. And organizations that do that stuff well uh, tend to have better outcomes. And, and you know, and that's uh, independent of kind of all the other, it's not just because they're a better company overall that they're doing these HR practices. Um, you know, it seems to be uh, a, uh, an important contributor to their overall success. Uh, so, you know, that's not just something that we're, uh, we're kind of making up here. There's, there's some good research to back this up. Um, good HR helps you beat your competitors and helps you succeed as an organization financially and overall. And it's um, a it's a low-hanging fruit. I know like so many companies are product-focused, like how do we make a better mm-hmm. tube of toothpaste or how do we market this better and all that kind of stuff. Well, if you're just making sure that the HR staff you have now are firing on all cylinders, that there's not barriers to them improving your organization, that's, that's advantage that comes for free, honestly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Especially when it comes to strategy execution, you know, if they're, they're helping to create a, a culture that's well aligned with what you need to do as a company, um, that's fantastic. And, you know, that kind of leads into another point that I, uh, you know, in terms of 
what I see as an opportunity for HR and how I tend to view HR is, you know, HR really can act as as a curator, so to speak, of the organization's culture. Uh, you know, those deep norms and ways that the organization that people in the organization behave, those things that we take for granted. You know, how we uh, how we talk to each other. You know, right. what are the 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 routines and the rituals and the ceremonies that we use in the organization? Um, how do we talk about ourselves? You know, what? How do we think about our 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 own heroes and villains within the organization to help each other learn about what right looks like and, and so forth? And HR can really help with that through um, through great hiring. Well, actually, it even starts beyond that. It starts through creating a good employer brand. You know, um, why anyone would want to work at your organization, and then from that, how they how you recruit people, how you uh, select them, how you orient them to the organization, uh, all of that. And then, you know, who you reward within the organization, who gets promoted. Are you promoting people who are being good stewards of that culture? All of that is really important for strategy execution uh, and, and really can help um, the organization move forward. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, everything an organization does communicates something to the broader broader business environment about who they are and what they do. I know that I've been involved with organizations that would interview top software talent and take forever to make an offer. Well, mm-hmm. they're nimble competitors that could tender an offer in a week versus, say, six to 18 weeks. I know it sounds horrible. They got, got the talent. Meanwhile, managers would say, well, well, wait a minute. We can't, we can't seem to get anybody. Well, yeah, your, your process stinks, but what will happen? Cause I've been at these like software meetups, like a .NET developers meetup or something. He was like, yeah, don't, don't go work for that place. Their, their HR's all messed up or yeah. they, they can't make a decision. Um, you know, you, I wouldn't want that reputation in the community and have to drive any kind of strategy. I mean, you're actually, you know, like workforce strategy and design is so key for you securing even reasonable talent. Like, do you want a mm-hmm. numbskull that can sit around and wait three months for you to tender them an offer? Yeah, right. Pro- <laughs> Probably <laughs> not, which, you know, that, no. ca- that kind of brings us to another one that like HR is essential because, Really, it should and needs to drive organizational alignment and congruence among, you know, people, culture, formal systems and processes and critical tasks that the organization needs, uh, you know, everything they need to do to execute its strategy. So, right, right. The organizational alignment, there's that like difference between, you know, okay, somebody up at the C-suite's like, okay, this is what we're going to do and and what we need to do and be. And then, you know, you know, our friend Mike always calls it wheel spin. They're, you know, they have a big announcement. Maybe they, you know, record some videos to communicate it to the whole organization. And as much as they push, push or yell at people for not hitting benchmarks, nothing, nothing's moving, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, HR is, if it's done right, is that critical linchpin and making sure that the people, the staffing, the culture and all that stuff is lined up so they can execute the daggone strategy, you know? Right, right. I think you bring up a really great point there. And it it it, um, it references a, a view of strategy that's known in uh, in in the business 
management literature as the congruence model, right? So it's this idea that, you know, an organiza- any organization operates in an environment, an environment that has competitors, that has regulations, uh, that has certain types of customers, and so forth. And strategy is about making sure that you as an organization are playing well in that chosen area. You know, it's about picking the uh, where you want to play and kind of how you want to win in that specific environment. And your strategy should determine what are the critical tasks that your organization needs to do in order to win. Now, the congruence piece comes into play and the alignment piece comes into play. And I think HR is a huge role in this. You know, there are a number of things that can that need to align with those critical tasks. And one of them is the people, right? Do we have the knowledge, skills, and ability to do this stuff uh, not only today, but also in the future? Um, and then the other piece is culture. Um, do we have the, the right sets of, uh, you know, norms and ways of behaving and incentive systems in place to really create the organization that we need to get those critical tasks done? And then the other piece is the... Uh, kind of formal systems and processes, the, the procedures right. we have to get all of it done. So in terms of strategy execution, I see HR as, as having this enormous opportunity to really do some great things for the organization if they have that, uh, that mindset um, and they're thinking in a strategic way and, that, and if the organization lets them, right? Yeah, they've got, they've got to have a mandate. So if you're firing off strategy and you don't have HR on board and calibrated with you to where they can help you understand the people issues and you can help them understand and you guys co-develop something, you're, mm-hmm. you're probably not doing it so well. Right. And HR also just needs to have this kind of external awareness of what the strategy of the organization is, uh, how it delivers value to its customers, and really look at being a, a service provider versus a gatekeeper. You know, I talked to a lot of a lot of people who, when I ask them what they think of HR, if they're not in HR, they oftentimes are like, oh, gosh, they're, they're the people that slow things down. Uh, they're the people that tell us we're all, all jacked up and need to do things differently. <laughs> and, right. well, and they um, use that compliance, like, if, yeah. well, you must listen to us or you're going to get sued or, or something like that. And, th- and that may be true, but the way you package some of that to be an enabler for the organization, that's going to help you when you try to achieve some of these you know, higher level functions of HR. Absolutely. Well said, you know, and when I've, so I've been around HR for a while now and, uh, you know, it's been a recurring theme, uh, probably for the past like 20 years of, you know, HR people, they want a seat at the table. And I think they're referring to kind of the, the strategic table, the executive table, they want to be heard. They want to be appreciated. They want to be valued, at that, uh, you know, that, that higher level. And, um, you know, you can't just sit around and whine about how you want a seat at the table. That's not going to get you a seat at the table. It's just not, right? You need to also think and act and really be strategic as an HR leader to do that. Absolutely. You know, it's a lot of, and this isn't, some, we'll say some, but not all, a lot of people want that place, but they actually don't have the executive skills and functioning to understand what's going on. So if, if you don't have like a broad-based business knowledge to understand the competitive environment, the customers, and those kinds of things, you're going to have a hard time 
sitting at the C-suite and adding value to the conversations that, mm-hmm. that they have there. And, you know, people say, oh, they don't let us be this, that, and the other thing. Well, how many of those people would just derail or fly off the cliff if they're like, okay, here you are, start showing up at the uh, C-suite meetings. You know, they, they couldn't handle right. that risk and exposure um, mm-hmm. about what's, what's going on uh, with that business environment. So, so if you want a seat at that table, you got to develop those core business fundamental skills executive presence that all all the stuff around an executive skill set and then you got to be okay to be in like if you stink you could get fired because you stink at that at that level so you actually have to want to be there and um i don't know it's like when you you say you want hr and all that kind of stuff to be, have more of a presence you've got to show that leadership that like earns you a spot at the table. And that's not to say that there aren't structural issues because I know a lot of CEOs, COOs um, that really don't understand HR. So they can Mm -hmm. even calibrate a good chief human resources officer hire that could add to those strategic elements um, at the table. So if you do have that, and you do want to seat at the table, you're okay with that risk and exposure, um, then a good way to start is, you know, kind of Gandhi it, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. So if there's yeah. a pay, if there's a pay disparity problem in your organization that you want to address as a strategic goal, make sure that that pay disparity problem doesn't exist within your HR function. Um, mm-hmm. If you want more diversity and, and those kinds of elements, does your function have that diversity um, that you want want to see. If you want uh, HR to have that executive seat at the table, that you got to be that executive that could really add that value that you're looking for. Right, right, right. So there's a lot of kind of personal responsibility that I think HR needs to take in order to take that next step and be more of a strategic partner at the table, so to speak. And with that comes uh, a lot more responsibility. But I think that's what some of the good organizations out there are doing. Uh, You know, there are companies that that do kind of get it and really value HR and uh, have HR professionals who are truly helping to shape and drive strategy. Uh, You know, another thing that you mentioned was just being kind of well-rounded as an HR professional. And I think that means, uh, you know, you need to have some exposure, some knowledge, uh, some appreciation for the other business functions, uh, because that's going to enable you to have a better perspective once you're at a more senior level. And, you know, because when you're, you're sitting in the C-suite, it shouldn't just be about, I'm here to advocate for HR and to, you know, get as much as I can for HR. At that level, it needs to be about, no, what are we doing to help move the organization forward? And how am I making sure that I'm doing things in HR that are contributing to those organizational capabilities we need to execute our strategy. Um, it's, a, it's less of a, you know, it should be less of a turf guarding type of environment and more of a, a, a uh, holistic type of view of how we're doing as an organization overall and how can HR contribute to that. Right. And, and it's collaborative, right? So the, the reason why organizations under 20 people don't have a full-time HR person, I mean, imagine you're under 20, people, but 10 of those are in your HR function. You know, one's doing some <laughs> machine learning AI, another one's doing analytics. Yeah, it, 
you just couldn't compete against no. other people because you're putting, you know, over half your headcount um, stuff into non-revenue producing capabilities. So that means, you know, whereas like in manufacturing, you can say, okay, well, we've got 10 workers cranking out widgets. So we're going to get so many widgets an hour. You can forecast your financial results pretty well, given that the sales are there, right? But if you're in these larger organizations and you do these kind of, you know, I, I use the term higher level functioning because they're all important functions, but these higher level functionings of the HR or HR activities, those need to be able to add um, advantage and capability to the organization that's more than the sum of your parts. So if you have an HR salary, uh, person whose salary is $100,000, does the thing that they're providing to that organization, is it providing, say, a million or $5 million worth of value across the entire organization? So like a great piece of that might be learning and development. Well, if this person's developing good training programs for executives and it's increasing the capabilities of 200 executives across the organization, heck yeah, that, that person's salary is probably mm-hmm. worth $100,000, right? Right, um, right. Yeah, and and there are companies like you said that are getting it, but there's a lot that that have a lot of opportunities to get it better. Yes, yes, awesome. So you know, I think just to wrap up a little bit, uh, you know, today's topic was about why we love and why we hate HR, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I think I come you know down on, on the love po- side a little bit more just because I see the opportunity there. Um, I think the hesitancy I have to say that, you know, everything is great in HR is that there are some some big challenges and some things that HR needs to do uh, and it, that HR professionals need to do to really succeed and, and to um, help organizations thrive, uh, especially as, you know, the world of work uh, shifts towards more of a knowledge and service-based economy. Indeed. So, Ben, why don't you wrap up with what we talked about today? Yeah. So today we talked about the history of the HR function, how it transitioned from more of this administrative wave to uh, through practices and um, strategy to more of a context-driven type of approach uh, in the future. Uh, We talked about kind of what's wrong with how HR oftentimes functions, given the changing nature of work. And we've also wrapped up on a high note by saying, you know, there are some things that that really make HR essential for the success of organizations in the future. And we suggested a few different uh, ways in which HR should change. And some of those have to do with mindset, have, some of them have to do with uh, behavior, some of them have to do with knowledge and skill building. So that's, that's what we've talked about today, and I hope it's useful for our listeners, regardless of whether or not you're in HR or not. And this is what I tell you know, my MBA students that I have for, uh, for an HR class. I teach this HR class that all MBA students take. And I say, you know, regardless of whether or not you're in HR or not, um, you need to know this stuff so that you can demand more from your HR function if you're not in HR. And if you're in HR, it means that you know the reason you should know all this stuff is so that you can start to contribute in a very meaningful way to your organization. Yeah, and the underlying you know thought is, hey, both people can be better partners to each other in um, creating a better place. Awesome, good stuff. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com. 
where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.